So one of the more interesting realities of spirituality is that genuine faith is always based on belief. Now, is it possible to eagerly and thoroughly believe something that's wrong? I suppose so. Um, That's a difficult question, one that I pondered some this week. But it seems to me that there are criteria given in Scripture that enable us to avoid wrong belief. And it comes down to a sense of authority and what you are going to use as the standard by which you judge whether you're believing wrongly or rightly. For me, the only standard of authority is the Bible. And so we always return to Scripture to understand what God has said about these matters. Failing to do that means that belief will be placed on something and then judged whether to be right or wrong based on maybe your own perception, the emotional feelings of a moment, the opinions of others, or maybe the ups and downs of life's experiences. And all of those are fraught with danger. And, and we struggle in the midst of those things. I can't emphasize to you enough the importance of genuine faith structured around Scripture and what God has to say about what you and I are to believe. Believing, though, is more than mental acceptance. Believing is an experience in which we make a commitment of our lives. So that as I've said to you before, because John uniquely uses this word in a way that is intended to lead us to an understanding of believing into Christ. So that we become a part of that which we come to know. And we become a part of him as he also becomes a part of us. And so the whole point of John's gospel is written so that we may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that in believing, we will have eternal life. That's what it's about. That's all that it's about. Everything else is ancillary to that reality. Everything else is tangential to that understanding. Today, we find a very focused attention on those realities. But Jesus is about to shift away from the kind of public ministry that draws crowds based on the wrong things and he is going to redirect and what we're going to see is a pinnacle soon after the passage we do today 
a pinnacle of following from people coming to see all of the wonders and signs that he's doing to what will then be a dramatic drop in the numbers of people that will still follow him because the words he will speak will be hard. Eventually, this will lead, of course, to the cross and the atoning work that he will accomplish on behalf of all who will believe in him. Up to this point, testimony has been given and others have spoken with regard to their experience of Jesus. Uh, People like Nicodemus have inquired on behalf of the Pharisees. Uh, The apostles or the disciples of John the Baptist have come to ask whether or not he is the Messiah that John has been pointing them to. Uh, All these kinds of of experiences, for the most part, have happened in small groups or one-on-one encounters. But now there is a growing uh, opposition. The Pharisees resent the fact that Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath, that his disregard for the laws and rules and structures that they have put in place to govern life are now being completely thrown aside. Jesus also has gone too far because he has spoken of God as his father. He has said, my father, putting himself on an equal plane to which they now have assumed he is is putting himself in a position as a God, not as an extension of or one who is sent from God, but rather as one who is in competition with God. And so it says, prior to the passage we look at today, that they now have set their minds to kill him and to get rid of him. And so this is is the scenario in which we find ourselves today. Jesus now makes it very clear. He's going to draw their attention very specifically, and he's going to present to them a reality that will force either belief in him or complete rejection of him. But there will be no middle ground left when this is all said and done. In verse 30 of chapter 5, we have another of the transition passages. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness, let me stop there, verse 30 only. Uh, I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. So in the previous verses, Jesus has spoken of himself in the third person. He has has referred to himself in a way that was less direct. Uh, But now we see in this concluding verse 30, which concludes everything that has preceded, but then also introduces what is to come. In this concluding verse 30, He shifts the focus from third person to first person, and that's important. Jesus is no longer speaking of himself, he's now speaking as himself. And it is in this new role that concludes what has gone before, but but really directs the attention of all the hearers to what is still to come. Clearly, Jesus is addressing the Jews who were seeking to kill him for his disregard of the Sabbath, and for the blasphemy that they have accused him of as he has implied this relationship as the Son of God. But he makes it equally clear that he is not doing this on his own. In fact, he says, I can do nothing on my own. But in keeping with the will of him who sent me, 
He is doing what God has sent him to do. Eight times in a very brief 30-word statement in verse 30, he makes references to the first person singular, I, I am, I am sent, he has sent me. It's very, very specific, but that makes it intensely personal. So that the verse draws the attention that there will be no misunderstanding regarding the message or the meaning of Jesus' ministry. He has come to confront the culture, and he has come to call people to salvation. We make religion, and in more particularly Christianity, about a lot of things. But isn't it interesting, and wouldn't it be interesting, if we could set aside those things and focus more intently on confronting the culture and calling people to salvation. I find that really intriguing. To do this, Jesus is going to employ a legal motif that depicts a courtroom scene. He gives us an opening statement, and then he provides reliable witness testimony and concludes with a compelling closing argument. All of this leaves no room for middle ground. The purpose is to declare that Jesus is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, and the ultimate judge of all creation. The proof is so overwhelming that it will be beyond a reasonable doubt. When I read this passage, my first thought was, I'm not going to use this legal approach. Because I bet everybody does that. And the more I studied it and the more time I spent with it, the more I realized this is the way it's intended to be understood. Something a lot of you probably don't know is that when I was in college, I struggled a great deal to find my direction and purpose. It wasn't because I didn't really have some inkling or knowledge of what I was supposed to do. It's that I didn't want to do it. And so I looked at all kinds of other options, considering things that I knew I couldn't do uh, because I didn't have the skills for those things, but nonetheless floundering a bit in this process and coming to the conclusion of what I often referred to as my celebrated period of rebellion. At the end of that, we ended up in St. Louis, Missouri, very providentially, not something that any of us had ever imagined or planned. And I was 19 years old when I, when I stepped out of the vehicle and, and into uh, a completely new cultural experience with some conversation and consultation by one of the advisors at Missouri Baptist University. I decided that because of my love for history and my... Um, prolific use of my mouth that I would be a political science major with the intent of getting a pre-law degree. I was really interested in that and I thought that it was something I could probably do and do fairly well and so I was pursuing that when a friend of ours that I had known for so many years uh, since I could, could, I could remember, I mean, it goes all the way back to my earliest memories. This friend came to visit, 
And he and my dad had been classmates, and my mom, they were all friends and, and had spent a lot of time together in college and seminary and then in ministry life together. And, and so periodically we had these visits and we had all these encounters. And he always had an interest in me and he always encouraged me. And he said, listen to God, just be obedient to God. Whatever God is leading you to do, if you'll just do what he says, it'll be great. He shows up in St. Louis at Maplewood Baptist Church one Sunday morning unannounced. He and his wife come and we visit and at the end of it, I tell him all about what I'm doing and what I'm planning for and the direction my life has taken. And he listens and he encourages me and he thanks us for the time and he sends a letter in the back of the letter. He said, Scott, send me a tape of your first sermon. I never called Jimmy back um, and told him about my surrender to ministry. I should have. But it was about... I don't know, a few weeks, a month after that, that I surrendered to ministry. The burden of the struggle was lifted, and the new burden of the challenge of ministry was set before me. But what I found was that the desire and the love for those legal matters had kind of inspired in me something that brought me to an understanding of a belief that wasn't based on empirical data, but was based on the supporting testimony of what I felt inside by the work of the Holy Spirit and had known all along, now being corroborated by someone from without that I trusted intensely. And, and it led me to the right decision. What this passage is intended to do it is intended... To bring us to an understanding, not based simply on empirical data that you and I control or that somebody else can manipulate and that falls under the purview of human understanding, but rather it falls on the sense of an inward testimony of faith that stirs within us by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, so that even though we don't fully understand something, yet we still know it to be true. And then we are given this corroborating testimony as evidence that comes from people down through the ages who themselves have experienced the same thing and now give voice as proof of its validity. Leaving the person who hears and really understands and receives convicted that Jesus is the Son of God and he alone can save, so that we believe that beyond any reasonable doubt. All right, verses 31 and 32, first of all, we see the opening statement. He says in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The opening statement that Jesus makes is interesting. In the preceding verse, Jesus emphasized, I can do nothing on my own. That is true even when the Son bears witness. He's not saying that his words are false. He's not saying that if I bear witness about myself, that I'm a liar. He's not saying that. He's saying that if I am the only one who believes what I'm saying, and nobody else believes it, then it's false. 
He's setting in in place an understanding. He's making a a statement that if I'm the only one who is going to accept the things that are being said about me and the things I am saying about myself, then you probably ought to listen to the religious leaders who are trying to kill me. But he doesn't end there. He's not saying his words are false, but if the burden of evidence to support the tremendous claims that he has been making exclusively depend on him alone, then indeed his witness is false. He's already stated that he says and does only what the Father directs. His witness, therefore, and his words that are being given are not simply his own, but it is also the witness of the Father, but from an inward perspective at this point. You see it in verse 32 where the word another, there is another. He's referring to the another, which is the Father who bears witness through the Son. What he is saying is that when you hear what he is saying and when you see what he is doing, you automatically are drawn to God. Remember the testimony of Nicodemus, which is not included in this argument, uh, in fact, But Nicodemus, when he first encounters Jesus at night, he comes to him and he says that that he, he honors him, he calls him rabbi, teacher, and then he says, no one could do the things you are doing unless God is with him. There was an understanding, there was a sense, though inwardly, yet profoundly, that testified that there's really something different about this guy. This is how he knows heavenly things. This is how Jesus knows where he came from, where he's going, and that his commands will ultimately lead to eternal life. This is how Jesus knows this because the Father is directing him. In his opening statement, Jesus is brilliantly setting in place an understanding that What he is sharing with them isn't his own, but it is that which has been given to him by God the Father, the very God that they all claim to believe. And thereby what he's doing is disassembling the argument against him even before the evidence is presented. He is truly creating a standard by which you cannot look to Jesus and believe anything that he is doing or anything that he is saying and without believing that it is from God. Once you do that, then your arguments against him are going to be null. If Jesus made nothing else of the case that he is offering other than this alone, it would be sufficient to support and to validate who he is. But he doesn't stop there. He also goes on and provides us with the testimony of witnesses. In verse 33, He begins by saying, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist is the first one. He's saying to the, the opposition, to the Pharisees, to the Jews that are trying to kill him, you sent someone, an envoy, an emissary from your own group to inquire of John as to whether or not he was the Messiah. They saw the works that he was doing. They saw and heard the things that he was saying. They could see the crowd that was gathering and the response of the people. And there was this whole swirl of excitement that maybe this man is in fact the Messiah. 
The first witness then he presents is John the Baptist. <coughs> Excuse me. He reminds them that they were the ones who sent the envoy to John. And when they did, he ultimately then directed them to Jesus. John said, no, it's not me. It's the one who comes after me. In fact, his testimony over and over repeatedly pointing, pointed the way to guide others to Jesus. Verse 34. <clears throat> not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus did not need the corroboration of any human witnesses. He's not saying that in order for me to be the Son of God, I have to have the proof and validation of someone like John. He's not saying that. He's saying that I'm giving you this proof, I'm reminding you of this testimony, because while I don't need that to be convinced of who I am, I realize some of you may. But then he shows why. The reason he wants them to believe and the reason he's trying to help them to believe is that they may be saved. The whole point of what Jesus was doing was not to confound the opposition or put them in their place at all. It was to present a cogent representation of what it means to experience genuine faith to the degree that it produces in us eternal life and salvation. Even though he did not need it, he knew some would and, and that they would hear John's testimony and they would in turn believe. That was John's purpose. Now it is the reason that Jesus turns to the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 35, he says, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was not the true light. He said that repeatedly. But rather, he is described here by Jesus as a lamp that reflected the light of Christ. This may be a reference to Psalm 132.17, where it says, Here I will make a horn grow from David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. It's not a, a really direct statement of prophecy, but it is one that certainly is consistent with the promises that God had given and in that context certainly applies to the lineage of David. The light that was revealed through John originated with God. He was a lamp. That means he didn't generate his own light. It means that he was simply there to provide an illumination that came from an origination. The light originated with God and John then became the vessel through which the world was illuminated to be able to see that. For a time, even the Jews rejoiced in the hope that perhaps he would be the Messiah. But the more he insisted that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the more their support diminished. It is interesting, and we'll see it again in this passage, that people are far more prone to believe in a person than to believe in God. It's an interesting thing, even if the person proves to be crazy. It is, it, it's, I, don't, I don't really have a conclusion about that. I just find it interesting. And so here what we're seeing is that he's calling us to believe in that reflection. 
But the Jews wanted a Messiah, but they wanted him on their terms. They did not want a Messiah that would lead them to eternal life, but one that would reestablish the kingdom of David and put them in a place of superiority over all other kingdoms, in particular Rome. Do you want faith, but you want it on your terms? Do you want a relationship with God, but you want it confined to whatever boundaries or limitations you've already established? Which is it? What do you want? I think many times when we want something that is going to give the appearance of genuine faith, but on the standards that really show that it isn't, it's just another false religion controlled by our own desires and inclinations, then we convince ourselves of its genuineness, and yet it simply is not. John's testimony pointed them to Jesus so that eventually, not only do they not accept that testimony of Jesus, they also reject the testimony of John. Verse 36 shows the second witness that Jesus calls. He says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works of Jesus in this is the second witness that he calls before the court of human affairs. This is a reference to the entirety of Jesus' wonders, signs, words, his ultimate death and resurrection. Everything that is contained in the life and ministry of Jesus is a part of what he is referring to here. They are nothing more and nothing less than what the Father has given him to do so that once this father-son relationship is grasped, everything that Jesus does simultaneously attests who he is as well as who the Father is. The works of Jesus. I think a lot of times we get caught up in the things that he did as far as the signs and the wonders, and so did the people of his day. But ultimately, what really brings us to the place of understanding and transformation is when we see the detailed descriptions of his death on the cross and then his resurrection. There's so many things that are spoken in Scripture with regard to that and how all of that is revealing of who Jesus is. That really is what we should think about so that when Jesus gives a testimony of the wonders and signs that he has done, he's really not talking nearly as much about the details of those daily experiences that so many people of that time were going to see and come to know. He was really pointing the way to something that would be definable and would be a defining moment in all of history. So the second testimony are the wonders and the signs, the works, if you will, that he is doing. Verse 36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that he has given me bear witness about me. Verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
Verses 37 and 38 provide us the third witness, and that is God himself. Now, while nothing specific is mentioned, the key to understanding that all that has been spoken through the law and prophets is now being realized in the person of Jesus, his baptism, his transfiguration, the signs and wonders performed, all of this demonstrate the overwhelming authority that could only come from the Father and through the Son. It is, it is an interesting statement for a variety of reasons, but again, it provides a concrete authority as evidence to prove that what he says is true. But Jesus turns the tide, and he does so in this verse, in the latter part, uh, and in verse 38. He gives a damning commentary on the state of their belief in the court of public opinion. They have not heard his voice, nor have they seen his form. Neither do they have his words in their hearts. Hmm. So, well, that doesn't seem so compelling because... None of us have seen his form. None of us have heard his words. Not audibly, but think about it. The Jews did have that evidence. A lot of people think this refers to the baptism and the transfiguration. And and as I said before, it certainly does include that. But that's in, in the timeline, if you look at it at all, of where Jesus is talking to the Jews, it is unlikely that they would have known about any of that. Maybe they would have heard about what happened at his baptism, but probably not the transfiguration if it's even occurred yet. And so, so none of that really is, is relevant. What's relevant here is the fact that throughout the Old Testament, God has provided ample evidence. Who's the pinnacle of, of who they follow and the words that they give themselves to so diligently? Moses. Moses heard the voice of God at the burning bush. Moses was allowed to see the image of God, even though very briefly and from the backside perspective. Moses was in the presence of God so that when he would emerge from the Holy of Holies, his face would radiate with the Shekinah glory of the presence of God himself. And as they give themselves to this and they pass down these traditions and they recount these stories, they would know that yes, yes, God has shown himself. God has spoken. But the words that he has spoken haven't penetrated their hearts. It's just so much academia for them. He said, you do not have his words in your heart. Why is that? This is why you can't understand the testimony that I'm giving. is because you haven't seen him. You haven't heard him for yourself. You haven't experienced his life-giving word in you. In verse 39, he gives clarity to that. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, you you go through all of these motions. You, You do all of this ritualistic exercise. You present yourself as religious at every turn. 
even to the point of this scholarly pursuit of understanding and knowing the word of God. And yet you don't know God. Back when, uh, when I was in seminary and in the early years that I was here, our denomination was going through something called the conservative resurgence. Uh, we had gotten to a point in the, primarily in the 60s and the 70s where our educational institutions and the very uh, leadership structure of our agencies had become very theologically liberal. Uh, many times we used the word theologically moderate, but that was just uh, a nicer way of saying liberal. Um, by liberal, I'm not talking about necessarily social liberalism as we see it today, although that was certainly part of it. Uh, I mean that there was a lack of belief in the authority of Scripture. You say, well, that cannot be true. Well, when I came here in 1987, I went to the Missouri Baptist Convention, and that year in Springfield at First Baptist Church where the convention met, a motion was made from the floor that the uh, convention would pass a resolution affirming the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture, and it failed. There was nothing else in the resolution. That's it. We, as the Missouri Baptist Convention, affirm the inerrancy and authority of the Bible. That was it. Nothing else. And it failed. It took 30 minutes to discuss it before it failed. I, I didn't understand. I was just dumbfounded by all of this. Uh, and so, so it, it reminded me, <laughs> I already knew we had a problem, now I really knew we had a problem. One of the accusations that came out of that, for those of us who pressed the conservative resurgence and ultimately led this denomination to come back to its theological roots, but one of the things that was said was that conservatives are not people of genuine faith, but rather are practicing a twisted form of bibliolatry. Bibliolatry is the idea or, or concept of not worshiping with the, the God who is reflected in the Bible, but the Bible itself. Now that was false, and that was not what we were doing, and that's not who we are. However, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. The Jews were guilty of bibliolatry. They searched the scriptures, and they did it diligently, and they did it as a way of believing that if I do this, then I will gain eternal life from this practice. What does that sound like? It sounds like every other false religion in the world. And yet it was being done with the Bible. Everything can be perverted and corrupted if the focus and the attention is removed from Jesus. Jesus said in verse 38, and then he repeats it in verse 40, that the reason that you haven't seen, you haven't heard, and you don't understand the word and the reason that you diligently practice these scriptural searches, but without any additional understanding that transforms your life, he said the reason is because you don't believe. 
I've used the illustration more times than I can probably remember, but it still remains one of the most appropriate I can think of in an occasion such as this. And that comes from Henry Blackaby, who teaches us that experiencing God is not possible apart from obedience. Genuine belief is where we believe what God is saying to the point that we act on it. It is that moment in which we face that crisis of a belief that we step through that crisis into genuine belief with a commitment. So that you say, I believe in Jesus and I believe in, in his saving work, but you're unwilling to make a commitment to that publicly or otherwise. You believe in Jesus, but you don't want to be obedient to his word, whether it involves baptism or church fellowship or whether it involves something else that is very obviously portrayed in scripture. You can't say that you're believing something while remaining disobedient to it. It doesn't fit. Belief is always going to produce transformation and transformation will always be represented by genuine obedience. He said, you don't, you don't know these things because you don't truly believe. You haven't committed to the truth that is right before you. He said, in spite of all these facts, still you refuse to come to Jesus. This proves that they're not reading the scriptures as they were meant to be read. And sadly, their searching of the scriptures has made them deaf to Jesus' words. He gives them a closing argument in verses 41 through 47. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not receive or seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In his final remarks, Jesus makes it clear that he is not attempting to persuade them because he seeks the praise or the glory of people. If he stooped to become the kind of Messiah that they wanted, doubtless he could attract their praise. He would simply adjust his message from what God had given him to what the people wanted him to say. But his entire commitment is to please the Father regardless of what other people do or say in response to that. He says, you have not received me. They did not receive Jesus, even though he came in the name of the Father. However, they do receive the claims of someone else. False messiahs are arising all around them, and because they say and do what the crowds expect and desire, as a result, they give glory to each other rather than to God who alone is worthy. It's no different today. People are always looking for the next great person to follow, and in the process, missing the greatness of God. Jesus tells them that he is not the one who will accuse them in the final analysis. In fact, it is their own beloved Moses. They look to the example and writings of Moses, the highest standard of the word of God, but they failed to see that everything that Moses gave was to lead them ultimately and eternally to Jesus. 
And yet, because they didn't believe Jesus, they didn't truly believe Moses. And because they didn't believe Moses, in turn, they didn't believe in Jesus. There's two keys that are found in the passages that we have looked at today. Um, Sometimes video game uh, engineers put into their game something called Easter eggs. Uh, Movies sometimes will contain an Easter egg. It's a hidden um, gateway to either moving to a different level within the game or understanding something not revealed entirely in the movie. It's, It's a key is what it is that opens something else that you otherwise are unable to get to. In these passages are two keys. They're not secret and they're not hidden, but they are easily overlooked. The first I've already talked about, and that is the key to understanding the Bible, to understanding the work of Christ, to understanding his reflection and revelation of God himself. The key to that isn't knowledge, it's belief. It's faith. Believing God above all else gives you an understanding of the things that you think are bound by intellectual ability. They're not. Faith can transform not only your life, but the lives of those around you because it releases something in us that is beyond us. Faith, genuine believing into Christ, is a surrendered commitment to his glory that produces an eternal transformation. The second key is that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything. So that when you're reading the Old Testament, no matter what it is, what part of it or what passage in it or, or what story is being recounted, all of it, if, if you will look at it from the perspective of what lies ahead and what is still yet to come, all of it points to Jesus. It is a record of the foundation and revelation of God's redeeming work that is to be realized only through Christ coming, his death, and his resurrection, his eventual return. So that when you're reading the Bible, you're not reading the Old Testament about judgment and the New Testament about love and grace. You're reading the Testament of God about the redemptive plan that has moved through the harsh realities of life and brought us to the point where even when no one else could have ever imagined it, at the very fullness of time, Jesus came. When you have those two keys, faith unlocks your experience with God and your eternal life within. And the Bible speaks of Jesus in every regard you now have the guiding standards by which you can judge truth beyond a reasonable doubt. The old adage is appropriate here. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. If he's a liar, he should be opposed, exposed for his false teaching. If he's a lunatic... He should be dismissed, disregarded of all meaning. But if he is Lord, then he should be lovingly embraced 
as the only one deserving of our temporal obedience and eternal glory. And with that, I rest my case.